Welcome to the podcast Byzantium and Friends. I am Anthony Caldellus, your host. It occurs to me sometimes that there are three main turning points in Western Europe's view of the Eastern Roman Empire, and each of them can be said to have introduced a new paradigm. The first occurred in the later 8th and 9th centuries, when the papacy and the Frankish kings began to make claims on the Roman tradition in order to justify their growing ambitions. These claims became exclusive, and they ended up denying the Roman identity of the Eastern Empire, which they then began to call the Empire of the Greeks, or the Empire of Constantinople. The second turning point was in the 12th and 13th centuries, when Western views took an alarmingly more hostile and belligerent view of these Greeks, who were increasingly seen as treacherous, unmanly, uncooperative in the Crusades, schismatic, and possibly heretical. These mounting tensions culminated in the Fourth Crusade, whose violence ruptured whatever was left of church unity. We have discussed aspects of that process in a previous discussion with George Demacopoulos. The third turning point occurred in the 19th century, when two interrelated developments took place. After the Crimean War, scholars in Western nations gradually stopped calling the former Eastern Empire, quote, the Empire of the Greeks, and started to call it Byzantium, a neutral term that did not seem to endorse modern Greek expansionist ambitions. This development, resulting in our category Byzantium, was very much the product of the Eastern question, uh, which was competition among the imperial powers over control of the Ottoman Empire, and specifically of control of the Bosporus Straits in Constantinople and fear of Russia. Now, the other development that took place at that time was the emergence of the professional scholarly discipline of Byzantine studies. So here to talk with me about two of these turning points is Elena Beck, a professor of art history at DePaul University. And we're going to talk about them through a specific lens, that of fantasy, and specifically of fantasy texts that were written right before the shifts themselves had occurred. Fantasy was one way by which Western society imagined alternative ways of looking at Byzantium and its own relationship to it. It was also a way of preparing for the subjugation of Byzantium as a decadent oriental land or a field of study that deserved to be brought under Western hegemony, whether of arms or of scholarship. Not surprisingly, sexual violence was a fixture of these fantasies. Elena has written two complementary articles uh, on these productions, and they form a nice diptych, so I thought it would be interesting to, to talk about them in conjunction. You can find full references to them in the information linked uh, to this episode. Here then to talk about fantasy, Orientalism, and the making of Byzantium is Elena Beck. Hello, Elena, and welcome to the podcast. Ah, oh, thank you very much. It's nice to be with you. So there are, there are two things in particular that I admire about your work. I mean, there are many things, but there are two that are relevant uh, for this discussion. And that is that, first of all, you, you range very broadly. I think when I first met you, you were working on the manuscripts of uh, uh, Scalizzi's and Manassis, and I had you as a, okay, 12th to 14th century manuscript person, but since then you have ranged very widely over the medieval and modern world, and we're going to be looking at two of those 
uh, interventions that you've made that actually both regard France, but in the 12th and 19th centuries. And the second thing that I admire about your work is that you have an incredible eye for, how shall I put this, sort of a quirky details or things that are off the beaten path um, that are non-normative in some way, but that you bring them into, you know, a, a mainstream conversation about, you know, broader issues. And I always like that. Thank you. So we're going to talk about two Western fantasies um, about Byzantium, and they're separated by long period of time. So the first is from the 12th century, and the second is from the 19th. And so we'll take them in order because I think that they bring out some similar themes. Um, and those themes uh, link up to discussions that I've had with uh, other guests on the podcast. And, um, um, and, and uh, I, I think they should interest our listeners as well. So the first of these texts is the pilgrimage of Charlemagne to Jerusalem and Constantinople. And it's a 12th century French romance. So could you just start by telling us a little bit about when and where this text was written and for whom and what sort of what its context is? It's an excellent question for which an answer is very difficult to come up with. So um, I will characterize it as follows. The manuscript in Anglo-Norman survives only in one copy, and it's a 14th century copy. However, it is clear that the text had a significant impact because already in the early 13th century it was translated into Old Norse, and then it was also translated into Welsh. And in the 15th century, it has a significant impact again at the French court. So the influence is present in various ways, but the origins of the, man, of the text, the authorship and the original performance, because it would have been an oral performance, is most likely later 12th century, although some scholars have suggested as early as late 11th century, but that's unlikely. Uh, the other thing is the pilgrimage of Charlemagne is the title given to it by 19th century editors. So we actually do not know how it was called originally. So that's the best I can say about the origins of a text. In terms of its um, narrative structure, it's highly unusual because it uh, makes light of so many things. It, uh, in a way, it ridicules rulership. It ridicules pilgrimage to some extent. It uh, ridicules the uh, power structures. It ridicules sexual norms. So it's an inversion of what we expect from serious narratives and serious structures. Right. So the text doesn't just ridicule the Byzantines, and we'll talk about some ways in which it does that, but even Charlemagne and his men as well? Exactly, and the, the, the text is wonderful because it's a battle of sexes. So the whole thing starts, um, the, the narrative is propelled by um, a competition between Charlemagne and his wife. She makes fun of him for putting on his regalia and looking at himself uh, and admiring himself. And she tells him that actually the ruler of Constantinople, uh, she calls him Hugo the Great, 
uh, looks much better in the uh, his imperial crown. Charlemagne threatens the woman with uh, decapitation, and the whole uh, she's unnamed in the whole narrative, and the whole story is propelled by him trying to prove his wife wrong. So in the first two hundred, uh, it's uh, about nine hundred lines of text. The first two hundred lines is kind of a perfunctory pilgrimage to Jerusalem where uh, Charlemagne does all sorts of good things, and uh, he looks almost like a reincarnate Christ for a local Jew, uh, but not quite. He makes nice deals with the local patriarchs. The patriarch gives money to the church, and all of a sudden he remembers the words of his wife, uh, and for the next 500 lines uh, he goes to Constantinople, um, competes with the Byzantine ruler, proves his wife wrong, and at the end of the whole story, he's completely vindicated because when he stands next to the ruler of Constantinople, he is actually 15 inches taller than the ruler of Constantinople, and thus the story comes to a glorious uh, conclusion because the Western ruler is, in fact, literally and figuratively superior to the Byzantine one. Measured in inches, right? Like Measured they, in inches, they, absolutely. They literally measure, okay. Uh, right, but before that point, uh, before the measuring contest, uh, as it were, uh, the these the Charlemagne and his his men have done quite a bit of damage locally, right? Oh yes, uh, they they do quite a fantastic thing. So uh, when they get to Constantinople, it's it's a narrative trajectory of the text is very interesting because when they first get to Constantinople, they're overwhelmed. They see the place so rich and so glorious and people so wealthy that they first cannot even identify who the ruler is. And the relationship between the two rulers starts again as an inversion of imperial decorum, because what the Byzantine ruler is actually doing is plowing the land while sit seated in a chariot using a golden plow and under a canopy and wearing his crown. So this is the first point of the meeting. And first, they're very happy to meet each other. Uh, but then when the visitors are brought into the palace in Constantinople and they're given lavish hospitality, what happens is that the Byzantine ruler shows some anxiety about his visitors and he gets them drunk and he puts a spy near their chamber to listen to what they're going to say. The drunken visitors are performing their own cultural tradition, and that is they're making jests or boasts, what they can accomplish. Uh, one says uh, things like, I can uh, flood Constantinople. Another one says, I'm going to have sex with the daughter of the emperor a hundred times in one night. And the spy writes all of these things down, and he brings it to the... Emperor of Constantinople, who confronts his visitors. Now, visitors feel that their privacy was violated uh, by the presence of the spy, and they try to patch things up at first. And Charlemagne quite literally carries an olive branch to the ruler of Constantinople. So we don't have many figurative things, it's literal. Uh, but the ruler of Constantinople says, you've made all of these drunken boasts, now perform them. And what happens after that is Charlemagne and uh, his knights pray to God for help. 
And we have quite a remarkable uh, situation that divine help is given uh, to nymphomaniacs and louts and drunkards. And so all of these things, uh, they are enabled by divine power to perform. And the ruler of Constantinople only can survive three of these um, challenges. Uh, the destruction of a palace, the flooding of Constantinople, and the violation of the imperial daughter. And after that, he submits to Charlemagne and says, you win. I'm going to be um, uh, quite literally, I submit to your power. You are the one true emperor, and I accept you su your supremacy, and God is, in fact, on your side. Right. I mean, it sounds a, like a burlesque. <laughs> I mean, it is that, yes. Yeah, yeah. Like the only plausible part of that for me is the spy <laughs> like that, that i can imagine happening um okay so the story is told within the framework of a sort of gender competition between charlemagne and his wife and it then becomes so there's an issue of masculinity at stake yes and then it becomes a competition between charlemagne and the byzantine emperor or the byzantines generally and this also takes the form of a of a competition over masculinity and authentication of you know manly you know uh, prowess and so forth. And you you talk in the article about how the Greeks are sort of feminized. The Greeks are you know that's what they're called in the text. They're they're feminized, right? Um, of course, they have to be for the you know Franks to emerge as the more masculine. And so I'm wondering what that might mean in practice because I, you know often i have to say you know you often read about uh, certain people being deemed effeminate or feminine or whatever and i never actually knew like in each case i don't know exactly what that means like what is what are the qualities being described like you know you you wear fancy clothes or you you, you faint when there's blood or you know what so how are how are the byzantines feminized in this text uh multiple ways so wearing fancy clothes absolutely so excessive wealth too much silk too much luxury too much jewelry uh, that's one way the other way is fear of the visitors and an understanding that the visitors from the west charlemagne and company are superior beings from the point of view of physical strength and it is in fact, on the power, brute power of physical strength that Charlemagne and his company win the, comp the competition. So they uh, can uh, use Byzantine luxury against them. So there is one um, example. There is a giant ball of silver and gold sitting in the palace. In the palace. And, one, uh, and 30 Byzantine men could not lift this ball. And one of the knights of Charlemagne just picks it up and kind of throws it as a bowling ball and destroys most of the doors in the palace. So this is an example of the comparative masculinity and the comparative strength in this case between the two sides. Uh, the same thing applies to sex, uh, back to that uh, imperial uh, daughter. Uh, again, the performance above uh, human expectations and generally above superhuman expectations in this case. Right, right. So I want to read a sentence from your article, which I think is very important. You say that 
Since Byzantinists remain ambivalent about post-colonial approaches, a burlesque fictional world in which crusaders could insult emperors and violate female imperial bodies is worthy of scrutiny. So can I ask you to unpack this sentence a little bit, especially because in a previous um, episode I discussed post-colonial theory with George Dimakopoulos. So what do these insults and violations have to do with post-colonial theory? Well, when we think about uh, the field of Byzantine studies, and um, when we as Byzantinists engage with this field, uh, we usually mark the 1204 as this defining moment of when we cannot think about Byzantine history other than in terms of relationships of imperialism or domination or rule by others or these kinds of indelible cultural transformations that were imposed on Byzantium from outside. What this text reveals, and um, there are some other Western interventions in uh, relationship with Byzantium already in the 11th century and onwards, we can see that the imposition of a narrative on somebody else is as important in an earlier period, sometimes, uh, ideology, setting at the ideological framework, as the later violation as we interpret it. Uh, you have to imagine something in order to accomplish it. And so imagining the conquest, imagining this violent fantasy, imagining subjugation helps to uh, fulfill the act itself. And I think it's important to think about earlier periods, the 11th century, the 12th century, also from the framework of this rhetoric and this very aggressive rhetoric that we see coming from the West, uh, West uh, Western medieval Europe, that is, sh that is shaping the crusading narrative, but it's also shaping the relationship with Byzantium. And in this context, it's also the background is much deeper cultural package where the Trojan narrative then is brought into the mix, where the Greeks are cast in the West as the aggressors who had destroyed Troy, Troy the original homeland of Romans and company, and therefore the fulfillment of punishment upon Constantinople can be seen as... Um, reciprocal violence or paying back for the acts done against Troy. So we have multiple ways where the history of imperialism, as we would call it, uh, plays out in the, in the understanding of a past and construction of a past, at least from the 11th century onwards, but we can also talk about it even earlier. Yeah, I think the point about fantasy is spot on and the way in which you know on, on an individual level we imagine things uh, before we do them um, or we you know we imagine multiple scenarios and then you know this enables us to play out whichever one you know uh, uh, becomes more uh, interesting or uh, advantageous at any time um, but, but this text really struck me because I mean it's such an uncanny anticipation uh, right of the kind of violence that was unleashed with the Fourth Crusade, where you have 
exactly this this scenario play out with including all of the sexual violence um and it i mean comparing you know medieval and modern things i was also struck by when when we see outbursts of violence today especially gun violence in the US you will often find that there's some fantasy scenario that was posted either by the shooter or by the kind of websites that you know he was hanging out on um that you know pre- that prepares the ground for the acting out of the fantasy um and in this case in particular i mean you're absolutely right that we tend to talk about the historical events <clears throat> as separate from the history of fantasy that preceded them but you you often find in discussions of the fourth crusade you know as the events are playing out and the crusaders that the crusading army is led to that dreadful conclusion of destroying constantinople that modern historians are like oh they never anticipated this i mean this was <laughs> you know, inconceivable and they were all shocked and the pope was shocked afterwards and you know it reminds me of you know that scene in the princess bride you know where it, inconceivable i don't think that word means what you think it means because clearly it was not only conceived but fantasized about in advance absolutely and it was justified so uh in um, the with when we talk about fourth crusade my one of my favorite text is uh robert de clary because he gives us some very nice uncanny glimpses of crusader rhetoric and my favorite case there is uh, the meeting between um, crusaders and let's call them bulgarians uh, or future bulgarians uh, somewhere in the vicinity of Thessaloniki and the bulgarians ask crusaders uh, what are you doing so far from your own homeland don't you have your own land to live in and crusaders answer well have you heard about the story of troy and the bulgarians right. say yes we have and crusaders say well now you understand why we're here we've come <laughs> to take what's ours and you know this is very very soon after the fourth crusade and this rhetoric is very casual presented in the dialogue but it clearly shows that the this fantasy apparatus or uh, the apparatus of justification or legitimization has been at play for quite some time. So shock and dismay of 1204 is hard to um, sum up, uh, summon up here. You're exactly right. And I think this point bears stressing that colonial, the colonial imaginary is not just a set of tropes and stereotypes, right? It's not just thinking that someone else is deficient in some quality or inferior or whatever. It is precisely a framework for subjugation, right. um, and whether it's conquest or whether in in just in representation, um, but uh, it prepares the ground for that conquest and subjugation. Exactly, and uh, what's interesting about this text too, it's um, very calibrated. Um, almost play acting of a collision between cultures. Uh, when a culture which is militarily superior in our narrative, um, and as the conquest of 1204 shows, uh, the Western side encounters a much more sophisticated, technologically sophisticated or culturally sophisticated culture, uh, how do you compete? You compete by destroying. 
And uh, we see it enacted in reality, in the imagination, and then, of course, the justific uh, justification of the actions. So this process is very interesting to study. It would be terrible to live through, but fascinating to study. Yeah, you make another important point um, where you say, well, I mean, you, um, the, the, when the Crusaders are in this exotic foreign land, they are somehow enabled by that fact to behave in ways that are different from the moral codes that they're expected to follow back home. And you have this striking phrase, what happens in Constantinople stays in Constantinople. Um, and this this had come up in my discussion with George Demacopoulos and, and is in fact a, a, a prominent feature of you know colonial post-colonial theory, that is, that the way in which the um, ruling culture treats um, often it's, it's colonies as a place where opportunities are available that are not available back home. Uh, to what to what were you referring uh, when you wrote that? It, well, it, uh, it, it's exactly the case because if at home you are bound by rules uh, in relation in terms of allegiance or forms of decorum or cultural conduct with another culture, you do not have to follow the rules of it, that culture or understand it. So in this particular narrative, the confrontation is propelled by the revelation of that spy. And instead of um, the Charlemagne and company treating the appearance of a spy as, let's say, a part of a cultural code or cultural package that one might expect in Constantinople, they insisted that the rules by which Charlemagne and company operate have been violated, and therefore violators have to be punished. So this is, in fact, imposition of the rules of the guests upon the hosts. And this is the exactly the kind of situation you're referring to. Yeah, and the case of Oliver, who, now if I remember correctly, there was some intimation that he might marry the daughter of the emperor of Constantinople after he violated her? Uh, yes, he professed his undying love to her and he pledged himself to her. And then after uh, per performing uh, the uh, deed of prowess, uh, he decided that he did not need to have any contact with her, and in fact, he aban abandoned her in a rather dramatic fashion uh, because she literally ran after his horse trying to hold on to his cloak, and um, he said goodbye to the fair lady. Right, and and these are the sorts of things you can get away with in a in a subjugated land, right? I mean, the, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's the one who actually lied for him in order to uh, confirm that he, in fact, performed the boastful deed. So th this is the case, uh, this is uh, one of the most hilarious cases in the narrative where the he boasts that he will have sex with her 100 times during the night. The king of Constantinople says, well, here, go prove it. 
And we have an inversion of a courtly scene where the lady begs him to actually perform the deed so that she is not dishonored if he refuses to perform it. He decides to be a gentleman and um, they have sex only 30 times during the night. But when the father asks the daughter in the morning, did it happen 100 times? She says yes. So she, in fact, lies for her beloved in order to help him and... uh, well, he he does not appreciate it. He uses he uses the resources that he needed to use, and then he goes back home. Right, right, because the local women prefer Frankish men. Exactly. Right, 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 right. Yeah, that that yeah, that came up. Okay. Uh, all right. One last question about the pilgrimage text. Uh, so, why do you dwell in your article on the domes, or why does the text dwell on the domes? Oh, that's a very good question. So uh, domes would be associated with Byzantine architecture very strongly because, of course, of the Hagia Sophia. Now, um, the fascination with the building uh, and the sheer accomplishment that the Hagia Sophia was was quite striking. Domes were generally not constructed or almost not constructed at all in Western Europe when we're talking about churches. So it's also culturally specific to Constantinople or to Byzantium to talk about this exotic architecture in the form of the domes. And in this particular case, it's not just the domes, but it's a rotating domes. It's part of the genre of the automata, uh, these magical mechanical devices that defy imagination. It's encrusted with gold and gems. It's back to the opulence of Byzantium. But it's also about impact of different cultural approaches to visual form. So if you're used to your churches looking one way, uh, let's say um, uh, the basic standard nave long uh, nave churches, uh, and all of a sudden you come into a centralized space with an enormous dome, and you cannot comprehend how it's constructed. It's back to that sophistication and cultural superiority of the other that you have to either undermine or engage. We do, however, have some interesting cases where in couple of uh, castles in France and what is nowadays England, we have polygonal chambers constructed in the late 12th, early 13th century, very unusually, but possibly in response to some of the architectural forms of Constantinople. Okay. Yeah, I thought it was uh, something like a a kind of shorthand for designating uh, Constantinople, probably the most impressive uh, aspect of Byzantine architecture that Western visitors would have would have seen. Um, But but here, of course, you know, taken to a fantastic level. Uh, Yeah. Okay. so let's jump now to the 19th century and to a different fantasy uh, about Byzantium. Um, and this is a, a play by Sardou. Uh, it's a, uh, from your description, it sounds like a sort of Wagnerian monstrosity <laughs> or a, extravaganza, uh, let's say. And this is a play called Theodora, of course. What else? Um, so can you just uh, give us a brief sense of where, when, who, just to orient the readers, no pun intended? Absolutely. Uh, your 
characterization as Wagnerian is right in one way for sure. It, uh, the play ran nearly five hours. So Ooh, right. on, on that level, it's very much in line. So this is a play from 1884, and this is the vehicle of Victorien Sardou and Sarah Bernard. And Sarah Bernard was the astonishingly celebrated actress of the period. Um, the play was a spectacular success. So in 1884, it ran, I think, 257 consecutive nights, which was practically unprecedented. It made huge amounts of money. Uh, it was revived in 1902. It made even more money. It went on tour. There were a number of films made uh, after the play. It had a very long life. Now, the uh, plot of the play is... Um, it depends on how you look at it. Preposterous, hilarious, great for analysis, uh, really revealing about Byzantium. Uh, the play revolves around the Empress Theodora, and it's loosely in dialogue with Procopius. And uh, Theodora herself is a divided entity she is presented in the play. She is the Empress. But she also has her colorful past as the dancing girl of the Hippodrome. And at night, because she's just so oppressed by the stifling atmosphere of a palace, she runs away and she roams the streets of Constantinople. And that's when she discovers true love. In this case, true love is an Athenian. He is a sculptor. His name is Andreas. He believes in democracy. Uh, talk about stereotypes. Uh, long story short, Andreas gets involved in the plot to overthrow Justinian. Uh, we're around about 532. Um, the plot fails. Um, Theodora stabs with a golden hairpin uh, one of the palace guards through the heart, who happens to be the, uh, the friend of her beloved. Uh, she hates Justinian, but she also loves power. Um, eventually her beloved is revealed, he realizes that she is the empress, he rejects her, she goes to get love potion from a local gypsy woman, the gypsy gives her a potion, she forces Andreas, who had been wounded already, to drink that potion, it was actually a potion of death, he dies in agony, she realizes that Justinian realizes that she's in love with someone else, and she gets strangled on stage at the order of Justinian as Constantinople burns. That's so, a, yeah, that's a just, just another day in Byzantium. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So I love that the Athenian lad is named Andreas, which means manly. Yes. And I was struck by this juxtaposition between Byzantium and essentially classical Athens, but a sort of transposed Athens, you know, it's just ripped out of the past and brought into the sixth century. So why is classical Athens in here at all? This is a really good question. And I think the answer lies in the uh, late 19th century moment when, uh, in this case, French scholars and French audiences are trying to determine what Byzantium is. So Byzantium suddenly becomes interesting in the 1880s. And this is a, a decade of fashionable decadence. So decadence is in. And this is also the period when Rome is no longer new. Egypt is not fresh. So you have to have something else. And something else is by way of Byzantium. Uh, we have 
a number of publications coming uh, out at this point about Byzantine art. And the big discussion is, what is it? Is it the European, related to European tradition? Is it related to the Orient, quite literally meaning the East in this case? How do you reconcile this entity? And the play Theodora and the trajectories of Theodora and the representation of Byzantium on stage and this dichotomy between Athens and Constantinople is the grappling with the ancestries and future trajectories of Byzantium. So they, the, the French understand that Byzantines speak Greek, and I think this is where Athens comes in as a cradle of civilization. But clearly uh, what B Byzantines have done is quite literally bastardized the uh, Athenian tradition. And so this is where you get this decadent oriental corrupt entity. And I have um, one of my favorite quotes about Andreas and related to the display, because you have to display the space on stage. And the space of Andreas, his house in Constantinople actually looks like uh, ancient Greek setting. So there's red figure vases, there's bust of Pericles or maybe Homer, uh, there's purity, there's simplicity of line, and I'll give you a quote from the contemporary reviews. In the atrium of Andreas, the simple lines of its pure Greek architecture contrasted strongly with the bastard Byzantine of the other scenes, end of quote. So you can see this unreconciled nature of the empire, quite literally visualized, very starkly. Yeah, so it's in the 1880s, and you're trying to make sense of Byzantium. Um, obviously, it's very interesting that the professional discipline of Byzantine studies is just a decade away, really. Mm -hmm. And yes. so in order to make sense of Byzantium, you basically think, okay, I'm just going to rub it up next to something that we know and see how it contrasts with that. And in this case, it's classical Athens. Now, if this is an era when there's this fascination with decadence, and Byzantium is definitely presented as decadence, as decadent, uh, so why is that necessarily negative? I mean, is it the sense that we want to enjoy our decadence, but we also want to look down on it at the same time? I mean, why isn't it a celebration of Byzantine decadence? Well, that's a good question, and that relates to, um, in, in some distant way, it relates to the work you have done and the kinds of topics you've talked about, like the designation Roman, right? Uh, who, who gets to call uh, Roman Empire? Roman Empire. And so Byzantium is denied that Roman identity because in the 1880s uh, discourse, because Roman is ours, meaning French, and this is noble and it's heroic and it's good, and this is that other thing. And it's the other. And when we talk about Orientalism, right, we have a, con a contrast between Western or Euro centered, which is good and noble, and then there's that other. And that other usually is decadent, it's corrupt, it's um, inferior in some ways. 
So it's participating in that discourse of the Orient, but we also have another thing going on in this place, and that is Constantinople and Istanbul, as in the city of the late 19th century, are mixed on stage a couple of times to the extent that there are even minarets on the Hagia Sophia. And the uh, Victorian Sardou says, well, it was a mistake of the set designer and it doesn't matter. But the blurring of lines between modern and historical. And in the 19th century moment, Istanbul is the Orient. It is the decadent. It is the declining. It is the collapsing. And so the transposition of historical places upon modern narrative creates that uh, relationship with decadence. Right, because no matter who you compare it to, right, it's found wanting. So if you compare it to its own sort of cultural antecedents in the Aegean, it's deficient, right, um, in relation to Athens. If you look at it within the Roman tradition, well, it's not really Roman. And if you look at it in the contemporary scene, that is, if it's a stand-in for late Ottoman Constantinople, then obviously when you compare it to presumably Paris or some other Western imperial capital, it's all, it's, you know, found deficient and oriental and decadent in relation to, right? It can't win. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's a pastiche. And so, uh, one of, uh, I, I love the sets in this play and the imperial box is this pastiche of different origins. So it, the set employed the, what, what looks like the Arch of Constantine in Rome, and it has the Parthenon frieze above the Arch of Constantine in Rome. Why not? It, and this, why, exactly, why not? And this is the Imperial Box in Constantinople. It's the taking of these traditions and just throwing them in together and then adding heavy mixture of uh, Near Eastern uh, metalwork and uh, some textiles and things like that to create that world beyond our uh, cultural norms kind of thing. So now that you say that, I'm all the more struck by Sardou's insistence that he had conducted extensive and detailed historical research in order to get it accurate. Like there's this claim, I don't know if it's a pretense you know, or a selling point, but this idea that th this is accurate, this is this is how it happened. And there are all these debates, right? You talk about all these scholars and journalists who are like weighing in on whether this this little detail was right. Why do you think that was going on? Why did anybody care so much whether they got it historically accurate? Uh, very good question. So um, the answer consists of multiple points. So one of the Sardou's claims to fame was that all of his plays are authentic historical reconstitutions, as he called them. So he literally claimed to make the world of the past come to life on stage. For that, he claimed to have complete authority. He claimed to read um, the scholarship, to go to museums, to conduct thorough research, he presents himself as the connoisseur of the past. And this is a selling point of the spectacle, and we see it in multiple ways, from the ephemera, like the advertisements for the play, to literally when the play is bought let's, and to be performed in the U.S., a very important feature is 
the costumes and the sets are authentic to the presentation created by Sardou. And by presenting himself as connoisseur, he then gives the audiences the assurance that what he shows is the reality. So that's one thing. The other thing is, uh, among the scholars of the day, at least Gustav Schlumberger was a friend of Sardou and Sarah Bernard. And Schlumberger apparently compared um, Sardou at some point to Ducange in his learning and knowledge. So yeah. at least some scholars bought into that. Uh, others, of course, were horrified. Uh, uh, Deal in particular had really hard time with um, Theodora that um, Sardou created. But Sardou was very interesting also when he was debating with scholars, and it was a very active, ongoing process for several years. They argued about everything from representation of Theodora's life. Uh, so Theodora is given a lover uh, in the play, and she's strangled on stage. And uh, Sardou's defense, um, Deal was very unhappy with that um, kind of setting. Sardou's defense was quite, uh, remarkable. He was talking about that when we have gap in historical knowledge, we can't say uh, fill the gap creatively. And so he he said the following that it would be absurd to make Mary Stuart die of consumption, Marie Antoinette of poison, Jean of uh, Jean d'Arc in bed. So an end as obscure as that of Theodora authorized him in imagining for her a death more Byzantine than the real one. So it's also, of course, construction of the Byzantium back to the Orient. It's a violent play, place. And so it also played, however, into the recipe that he and Sarah Bernard used in multiple plays to great success. So one had to be vulnerable, transgressive heroine. So here's Theodora divided against herself. She loves, she loves power, etc. Spectacle is at the center, and this is where the historical authenticity is a key. And the other thing, the final ingredient, is uh, her spectacular death on stage. And so that's why he had to defend both authenticity and present it, his version of Theodora and his version of Byzantium as correct. Right, because in the 19th century, we have audiences that are expecting historical you know, research and like they're, they're conditioned to think of history in terms of, you know, what um, the professional historians and professors were increasingly writing. So this expectation of historical research didn't exist to any, you know, degree like that in the past. And so, so it seems that violent fantasy had to cater toward, you know, these expectations of historicism at the same time that obviously professional historical research is also taking on the elements of fantasy, um, especially the Orientalist aspects that uh, that you you draw out. I mean, I I think that some of these tropes, like if you just think about the the comparison of Byzantium and Athens, or, or classical Greece, right? Like as as something that is supposed to prove a conclusion of some kind about Byzantium, whatever that is. I see that continuing into the nineteen fifties and even sixties. Oh, absolutely. Like, but it's complete fantasy. I mean, there's no reason to compare. It's not a historical methodology to compare, you know, two cultures of 1500 years apart or whatever. Um, but I mean, the Orientalism is quite, 
quite on, I don't know if it's ongoing anymore, but certainly into the late 20th century. That's very true. And um, um, if, if we think about how uh, Byzantium is taught, um, well, I'm an art historian, so one of the things I deal with is uh, if you're doing a survey of uh, the history of art to, I don't know, to the medieval period, if you analyze textbook tables of content, Byzantium still does not have a comfortable place in the trajectory which expects some kind of progression, implicit pro uh, progression. Sometimes Byzantium was put next to quite literally Chinese art or Islamic art, but it is separated from Western European tradition, the Romanesque, the Gothic, etc., etc., because it's still the other. It's still something else which cannot quite be reconciled with the standard narratives of uh, European Medi uh, Middle Ages to the present day. Right. Well, that's disappointing because art history is certainly the most successful, uh, you know, subfield of Byzantine studies. It's not really a subfield, it's its own field. And I always thought of it as the more successful and, you know, theoretically advanced. Because if that's the case in art history, you know, I can tell you what's going on in sort of general history or or the history of literature. I mean, there Byzantium has no place at all. Um, but anyway, so it looks like we still have uh, some work to do. Uh, one one more question about the uh, the historicizing. So why are forks important? Ah, forks. Uh, the the debate about forks was uh, qu quite uh, fun, and uh, a simple answer is a simple answer is the play is an ahistorical bricolage. It's in many ways illogical, but the fork is one of these elements which ties Byzantium with the European tradition of the 19th century. Europeans in the 19th century ate their food with forks. There was a whole, um, the, a complex way of manners and displaying one's manners, one's social status, one's civilizational attainment, etc. By giving Theodora a fork, uh, Sardou made her both modern and in a way comparable to contemporary Europeans. And so the debate over the fork goes back to the debate about European man manners versus the Oriental manners, because one of his critics said uh, that in nowadays Turk Turks eat with their hands. Why does Theodora have a fork? So here is again an example of the other. And the Sardou then went on to trace the lineage of the fork, taking it all the way from Rome. Uh, he claimed that St. Helena, as a mother of Constantine, uh, had uh, a fork uh, herself, and then taking it all the way through the um, Western Europe uh, in the later mid Middle Ages to the uh, through the Renaissance to the courts of uh, Spain and France. So showing that as a way of proper European and also elite behavior. The fork is also interesting because people are fascinated with uh, cultural modes of engagement with food, uh, with manners. It's something anthropological, but it's also the way 
something you take as a standard in your own culture can be seen as something very different in another culture. And there were at least two books on fork fairly recently, one in 2012 and I think one in 2002. So fork continues to fascinate people. Yeah, there's this idea that you know the fork was exactly. was introduced to Western Europe by a Byzantine imperial bride, like in the 10th century or early 11th. Um, in some traditions, it's the uh, Venice that is via Venice. Uh, I think maybe possibly Thelfano in Germany or something like that. And yeah, I remember what? reading a a very detailed long article on the history of the fork, and of course the reality is is very confusing and messy and i don't i don't know if we know now whether the byzantines exported the fork anyway i don't i don't think we know but the idea of uh the idea of archaeological knowledge here is uh in in this whole debate is also very nice because sardou was able to show his erudition and knowledge of the material past and uh, this material past, this jeweled, decadent place, uh, he was able to show himself as a master of both material culture, sources, and narratives, at least in self-presentation. And so this was also part of that strategy. Yeah, and it's sobering to think that we're still, no, no, despite everything that we've learned and all that we know, it, we're still not quite at the place where we can visualize Byzantine material culture and daily life in the way in which he was hoping to do. Like, there's still some pretty basic things that we don't know. Um, yeah, like, a, like how women appeared in public, you know, these, these sorts of things. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the amount of things we don't know is still pretty vast. Um, I teach a class on Constantinople, and so talking about the basic things like certain um, street layouts and certain neighborhoods and things like that. I mean, to, to an extent, we still don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have a great line in here. We all get the Theodora we deserve. <laughs> that, that spoke to me. Um, so any concluding thoughts on Western fantasies about Byzantium and you know whether they have reflected or created uh, the way we write history about it? I think they have been very powerful. Um, uh, I often think about the parallel trajectories of Byzantium as um, a subject of inquiry in the late 19th century. And so we have this uh, French trajectory here with the interest in late antiquity and uh, late antiquity naturally back, uh, back to the issue of decadence brings that kind of collapse and fall and then the baton of the civilizational light is picked up in the West and off it goes. But the parallel school of Byzantine studies in the late 19th century is um, a, a very different one. And I'm thinking now about Russian imperial school. And Russians were thinking at that point in different categories about Byzantium because Byzantium was their predecessor. We're talking about our orthodoxy empire, whatever you want to construct in this case. And so what they narratively picked about Byzantium to choose to study was vastly different. They were interested in the icons. They were interested in the remains of Orthodox Constantinople. They were emphasizing that continuity because 
for their own narratives. That was the kind of Byzantium that mattered. And that's why I think when we are constructing our versions of Byzantium, our own interests and questions very much determine the kind of final product we end up creating. That is a point very well taken. Uh, we shouldn't assume that uh, Western or European fantasies are, are all the same or serve the same purposes. Um, this is a very complex picture. And I think a lot of good work is being done recently on like Eastern European and Russian uh, views of Byzantium in the 19th century. The, I think those will become increasingly more important. Uh, Okay, so the closing question, I asked my guest to recommend two books that are not necessarily on Byzantium that they would recommend to our listeners as a good reads. Uh, good reads and good to think with. So one is an academic book and one is uh, more of the world history kind of book. So the academic book is by Hank Tromp, T-R-O-M-P, and the title is A Real Van Gogh, How the Art World Struggles with Truth. A very interesting thing about the artist Van Gogh is um, to, this date, to this date, debates about authenticity of his paintings rage uh, very extensively. And this brings in the um, experts uh, because the uh, definitive catalog of Van Gogh's paintings uh, received an ab update in 1928 where an expert wrote a retraction about some paintings not being authentic and created a huge storm of controversy because this implicates museums, uh, patrons, knowledge creators, etc. It's a very interesting read of thinking about art market, art world, art history, connoisseurship, things like that. And the other book is by Nicholas Ostler and that is Empires of the Word. A Language History of the World. Uh, we've seen a lot of uh, big narrative histories being created lately, and I think um, a history of world cultures through language, language structures, and understandings of culture through language is a very interesting take. It's a problematic book, but it's a fantastic read, and it's really sometimes maddening and sometimes really enjoyable uh, by somebody who is a polyglot. Okay, I will look, I look that up. I think I picked it up at um, the museum in um, in Brussels last year, but it's still in my stack. Uh, but uh, I'll pull it out. So thanks for their recommendations. Absolutely. And Elena, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, thank you, Anthony. Likewise, it's always nice talking to you. And so I'll see you in Madison in like a few weeks. Sounds good. Looking forward to it. All right. Goodbye. Bye-bye.